Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Good morning, especially to the families who are in the room. If you don't know me, my name is Max. I'm our associate pastor. And good morning also to our kiddos who are in the room. If you're a kid in the room, can you say hi? Hi. Yeah, I guess you can opt into your own age on that. I guess we're all children of somebody. I'm glad you guys are here. I have a question for us to start us off this morning, question for everyone in the room. You can take your answer and you can hold it in your head for me. I want you to think about when do you think it started to become normal for churches to start having pews and chairs in the sanctuary? Kind of a weird question, maybe. Maybe you've never thought about that before. You're just thinking they've always had them. Would you believe that it was actually 1,200 years, 1,200 years into the church's history that we started to bring seats into the worship gathering? I think we have an expectation when we come to church that we come, we sing some songs, and then we sit down and we get lectured at for 30 minutes And then we leave and go on our way. And I bring that up because today there will be movement in the room because we have kids in the room. And I just want us to recognize for over half of the church's history, there's been movement in the room. There weren't even seats for people. And so we can welcome the movement. When Jesus said, let the little children come to me, it wasn't just a metaphor. There were little kids running around during his ministry too. So if you have a little one with you, they can do their activity bag. I'm going to try to preach to them as well. But if they're making noise, it's not a big deal. We're here along with them. I do have something, though, to help keep us engaged, because I imagine there will be some distraction. This is for everybody, no matter where you fall on that age spectrum. I want us to listen for, anytime I say the word Mary, I want you to say the word Christmas. Can we do that? (laughs) Okay, everyone, kids especially, I want to hear your voices. Mary? Awesome. Thanks so much. I'm going to keep you on your toes, too, so I want you listening. We're going to be looking at two texts today. Today, like John was pointing out, it is Christmas Eve, and yet what we're doing this morning is the Advent 4 service. So we're observing the fourth Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday in which we're longing and waiting for Christmas to get here, for Jesus to get here. And we're going to read two stories this morning that are about other people who were waiting for Jesus to get here. One was King David, and the other one was Mary. Christmas. There it is. And now you see why we're going to be saying that a lot. So we've got two stories. One is of David. One is of Mary. Yeah. And in our first story, looking at King David, we're specifically looking at a moment in time in which the prophet Nathan told him about someone who was going to come from his line, someone named Jesus. And so if you want to take your Bibles, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be just following the story along. I'm going to be reading sections of it and then making some commentary on it. We'll start in verse 1. Words are behind me on the screen as well. The text says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So what's going on at this moment of the story is God has taken David from being a shepherd from being somebody whose job is to care for sheep, and he's made him king of a nation. And not only has he made him king of a nation, he's made him king of a large and prosperous nation. 
a nation that's experiencing peace. And it's one of these moments where I think David finds himself sitting back and thinking, how did I get here? I am not qualified for this job. I've had a lot of jobs, and very rarely have I felt qualified for any of them. I imagine that's especially true of David the shepherd, who's been made a king. I think about if we were interviewing David for his job as king, can you tell me about a time where you've brokered peace between two warring nations, and he's thinking, okay, how can I relate shepherding to this qualification? He, just, he has no skills or abilities that he's bringing, and yet he finds himself seated in a palace, looking around at all his possessions, and thinking, this is incredible. How is it that I am in a palace and God is living in a tent? God is still living in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, if we need a refresher on that, was this mobile home for God. Kids in the room, maybe you've been camping in your backyard before. That's the kind of setup that God was living in with the people of Israel. And the reason that God was in the tabernacle is when he went to the people when they were in slavery in Egypt, he said, I want the world to be like Eden again. I want to live with you again. But we're going to have to find you a new home, a new place for us to live together. And so until the time where we find our forever home, I'm going to live in this thing called the tabernacle. It'll be a mobile home so that wherever you go, I can be with you. And David, as he looks around, he thinks, I found my forever home. I'm here. I'm in my palace. We have our land. It's time for God to have his forever home too. But the text continues on. It says, But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with the, the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God, speaking through the prophet Nathan, says, I don't need a house. You, you don't need to worry about this. I'm not bothered. Quick check, Mary? Christmas. Christmas. Kids, you hear me, Mary? Okay, great. But God keeps going through Nathan to David. He says in verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. This moment to me feels a lot like if you've ever tried to buy dinner for your parents. It's like, you don't need to buy me dinner. I'm buying your dinner. Stop. David has said to God, I'm going to build you a house. And God comes back to David and he says, no, you're not. I'm building you a house, which is kind of a weird thing to respond because David already has a house. And especially as we start looking at the language that God is using. Because God actually isn't talking about a building. David already has a building. When we look at what God is saying, the house that he's talking about is actually a person, which is a strange thing to talk about building on behalf of somebody else. So the question that we should be wondering to ourselves is how is it that a person, a son who will come from the line of David, will satisfy this requirement of a house, of a dwelling place, of a place where God will live? Let's see how God describes this son who will come from David. In verse 13, he says, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, church, who does this sound like? Jesus. Yeah, the easy church answer. Sorry, it wasn't a Merry Christmas, but it was Jesus. This sounds like Jesus. Think about when Jesus, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, 
he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Pharisees respond back to him saying, how will he raise this temple up in three days? It took us 40 years to build this thing. And he's referring to his own body. Jesus conceives of himself as the place where God has come to dwell with us. He is veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. He is God come to live with us. So he's the true dwelling place of God. He is Eden, where heaven and earth are colliding in a person. This is God's vision for how he will live with us. The text goes on and says, I will be his father and he will be my son, which this is how Jesus understands his relationship to God, right? He identifies him as the father. He views himself as the specially chosen son. Text goes on saying, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And isn't this what we see Jesus doing for us on our behalf in his death and resurrection? Which, this is a part of the text that ought to be strange to us. So if we're putting ourselves in the mindset of an ancient Near Eastern king who's bragging about a lineage who's to come from him, whose kingdom will be established forever, the thing we don't expect him to say is, yeah, one of my descendants, he's going to be beaten up on your behalf. That's a bizarre thing to say. What God is putting forward is the one who will come from the line of David, who will satisfy our needs, who will bring this forever kingdom. He's not going to reign in power in the way that we conceive of it. He's going to reign in power that comes from a self-giving love from a love that seeks to take on punishment that's due to other people. So this is what we see is David is waiting on God to live with them in a forever kind of way. And he says to God, let me build you a house. And God says, no, no, I'm building you a house, but the house is actually a person. The means by which I will come to live with you will be a person. So how does that happen? How does that come to pass? Well, let's look at our second text for today, Luke chapter 1 on page 1,457 of your Bibles. We'll pick up the story in verse 26 of chapter 1. The text says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a young woman pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The young woman's name was Mary. Yeah, thank you. So what I want us to see about Luke's setting, how he's setting up this text, he's not just identifying a time and a place, although he is giving us those things. He's identifying the lineage from which this child, Jesus, will come. Luke is trying to explicitly situate us to let us know the story I'm telling you is the story of this descendant of David. This is where we're picking things up. So 128, the text says, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So this is a funny meeting between the angel and Mary. Yeah, you can keep saying it. I'm not bothered. I asked you to. So he comes to her and he says, you are highly favored. God is pleased with you. He's happy with you. And Mary has this moment where she kind of looks around. Yep, thanks. You got me that time. I have them in my notes. She looks around, and she's thinking to herself, is he talking about me? And maybe you've had one of these moments before where someone has come to you, and they've said, you did such a great job on that. Thank you so much. And you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what they're talking about. I hope I'm not getting credit for somebody else's work. Mary is thinking to herself, I have no business being visited by an angel. I have no business being told that I am going to conceive a child who will be god 
with us. And just like David, who had no earthly qualifications for his kingship, Mary finds herself in a place where she is wondering, you're doing right, you guys are great. She's wondering, how am I being chosen here? So the text goes on, verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And this is a really interesting moment in the text because as a parent, one of the most unique things I've experienced in my life is naming a child. It's something that is really unique. I can't think of anything else in my life that has been like it. There's a sense in which I'm shaping the identity of another person. I'm speaking a part of who they will be into existence by calling them something, by naming them something. And this angel who's come to Mary already has, thank you, a name picked out. God has already named the child. So there's one sense in which what we see is this child is being claimed by God. God is saying, this is my son. I've already picked out his name. And there's another sense in which God is saying, I am shaping his identity in a certain way. His name will be Jesus, which this might be lost a little bit on us in our English translations. In the original language, this would have been Yeshua or Joshua. And there's two things that are coming to mind for the original audience when they're hearing that this child will be named Joshua. The first is that name literally means God saves. The angel is coming to Mary saying, here's the child, God's presence with you, and this child will be called God saves. The second thing, though, the thing that would have been big in their mind is there's already another character named Joshua in the Bible. He was a mighty conqueror. He led Israel into the promised land. He was the one who was responsible for David having that big kingdom. So they're thinking, okay, God saves, and he's being named the name of this mighty warrior. But let's keep reading the story. Verse 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So again, Luke wants us to really explicitly see this is the child, this is the kingdom, this is the moment that we have been waiting for. But verse 34, Mary replies, she says, how will this be since I am unmarried? The angel, yeah, that one was married and not Mary, so that's okay. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The language here is really interesting. So Mary is saying, how can this happen? I'm unmarried. Sounds great. We've got the heir we've been waiting for. How will this come to pass? And the angel replies to her and says, you will be overshadowed by the presence of the Most High. And that language, overshadowed, is actually the same language that they use to talk about what it meant for God's presence to dwell in the temple. He overshadowed it. He was among it. His breath was there. His spirit was there. What the angel is telling Mary is in the same way that God has dwelt in the temple, he's coming to dwell in you. Jesus is coming to dwell in you. Y'all, the story of David is a story of waiting. It's a story of waiting on God to fulfill something, this promise of what he said he would do way back in Genesis 3, which is to undo the curse of Eden and to relive life with us again. The story of Mary, thank you, is a story of waiting. 
of Mary waiting for God to dwell with us again, but rather than a temple this time, we see a young woman with a child. Rather than the conqueror that he was named after, we see a tiny, precious, fragile baby. This is the means by which God is bringing his presence into the world. It's, it's not going to be a building, a place of worship, an object that we can look at and say, God's over there. It's going to be someone who comes to dwell with us. What David had hoped for has come true in a way that he could not have possibly imagined. Jesus has come to dwell with us, not just to bring God's presence in a faraway, but he's come to be near to us. The Christmas story, the longing and expectation and hope that we have is strange and wonderful. God approaches two people who have no earthly qualifications, and he invites them to be part of bringing his presence to the world. And part of what we need to take away from the Christmas story is that we don't need to be impressive in order to receive the presence of God. God is not waiting on us to have a particular skill set or to have done a particular thing. He comes to all kinds of people. We are responded to, or invited rather, to respond as David did, as Mary did, with faith and trust. And they respond in faith and trust from two totally different ends of the spectrum. I think this is really important for us to see. It's probably easy, or at least different, for David to respond in faith and trust because he's living in a palace. He has everything he could want. And yet, God invites him not to build, but to wait. And when I look out at this room and I think about the affluence that, generally speaking, we have been afforded, perhaps what we are being invited to, into in the Christmas season is to not think, I'm going to go build something that's going to accomplish God being here, but rather to wait on something that God will do in a totally unexpected way that we can't bring about by our means or our privilege. So maybe that's the response of faith in this Christmas season. Or maybe our response is more like Mary's. So what we see with her is the opposite end of things. She's not in a position of privilege. She's an unwed young woman in a society where she has no means of bettering herself. And she's being told, hey, you're going to have a child. That sounds like a place where she needs a very different kind of faith, but a faith all the same, a faith to say, God, I need you to deliver me. And yet, what we see with her is she responds in a way that says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary says, yes. Thank you. She says, yes. And I think this is a detail in the story that we can miss. Maybe in the angel's annunciation, what we think is happening is Mary is being informed of something that she's just kind of a bystander in. Although if you've been pregnant, you probably don't feel like a bystander in that scenario. What I mean is she's just being informed of something that's going to happen. But Mary replies with yes. There's a, a sense in which she could have said, no, I don't want this. Just like David could have said, no, I'm going to go ahead and build you a temple. There were lots of kings that had no issue going off script from what God asked them to do. Mary stands as an example to us of responding in faith, of saying yes to something that God is bringing. And what I want us to hear as we close this message this morning is when we're thinking about the story of Christmas, the story of invitation, of waiting, being satisfied, the invitation that is put forward to Mary is the invitation that is put forward to us. So John 14, 23, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them 
and make our home with them. Christmas is not just a season of remembering a historical event that happened. It is an invitation into participating in the same overshadowing that Mary experienced herself. Thank you. You're doing great, truly. What we see in Mary is that she's willing to say yes. She's willing to say yes, and she's being put forward as a model for us, whom Jesus is inviting to also say yes, that God's presence can come to overshadow any one of us. And that really is the message of Christmas, that in God coming to live in us, Eden restored, waiting and longing for the full return of Jesus, we would then become Christ's presence to a waiting world. So it's to that end that I invite us to pray now. Pray with me. Before I pray, let's call the Mary thing off during the prayer. Cool. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the narrative of Christmas. We thank you for the example of King David, whom though he was a shepherd, was called into great riches and had to learn how to trust in you. To say, God, you will be the one to accomplish this. I will not. God, we thank you for the example of Mary, who although she had a lowly estate, was willing to put her trust in you. God, I pray for all of those who are in this room today. Pray for those families who will be celebrating later. God, we ask that you would come to make your presence in us known. That in the posture of John 14, 23, that we would see you are coming to make a home in us. And that's good news. I know for me, I need to be remade. We need to be remade. This world needs to be remade. How kind you are that you accomplish your work, your purposes, by changing individual people. God, I don't know what all of our expectations are for how you were going to accomplish your purposes, but in the same way where when the people heard Joshua, they thought conqueror, and instead they were given a baby, would you let us be open to the ways you might work in us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.